Welcome to the War in the Pandemic, a special COVID calls episode that is part of a longer series of the program that started yesterday, a deep dive into the exploring and reflecting on the first two years of the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Jacob Steer-Williams. I'm a historian of epidemic disease and public health at the College of Charleston. I'll be hosting a series of episodes for this special program, and you can catch most of them with the regular host and founder of COVID Calls, Scott Knowles. Scott began COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse array of disaster experts on March 16th, 2020. And we're doing this marathon of episodes to mark the 500th episode of the program an incredible testament to this public history project and digital archive of the pandemic. For the record, this is episode 484. You can catch COVID Calls live on the COVID Calls YouTube TV channel and follow us on Twitter at COVID Calls, Scott at US of Disaster, and myself at Steer Williams. So today, is a, a, this episode is part one of a two-part series exploring the entanglement of the COVID-19 pandemic and the war in Ukraine. On February 24, 2022, Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, tweeted that Vladimir Putin had launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Russian attacks began that Thursday after Putin approved in a televised address, quote, a special military operation in Ukraine, a war. Russian missiles began to attack cities and civilians all across Ukraine. Three weeks later, the war in Ukraine rages on. Two to three million Ukrainians have fled the country, and millions more have been displaced internally, creating a tremendous humanitarian crisis in what is undoubtedly the largest European military conflict since World War II. Casually, statistics have been difficult to come by. The UN reported yesterday that more than 500 civilian Ukrainians have died, and U.S. military estimates are between 2,000 and 4,000 deaths in the Ukrainian armed forces. 5,000 to 6,000 deaths of Russian soldiers. The war in Ukraine began as the country was reeling from the most devastating period of the COVID-19 pandemic and a surge of cases from an Omicron wave. The Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center reported that on the day of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Ukraine had experienced a seven-day average of 27,000 new COVID-19 cases a day. I want to talk today about how disaster piles on to disaster. Daily, we're hearing reports, at least from what I'm following in the U.S. and from other media sources, of Russians shelling hospitals throughout Ukraine and the availability of medical supplies dwindling. Ukrainian refugees are undoubtedly carrying COVID-19 to neighboring countries. Ukrainians are facing the immediate threat of war within the country, sometimes in close quarters of subway stations, basements, and temporary shelters. The organization... Human's Right Watch has re just reported that the port city of Mariupol, the last city in Europe to have a significant cholera outbreak in 2011, has been without running water, electricity, or power for days as Russian troops continue to shell and surround it. We will no longer be able to tell the story of the pandemic without the story of the war in Ukraine. And my guests today are experts that are here to help us make sense of the war and the pandemic. I'm so delighted to have you both with me here today. My first guest is Pavlo Kovtunyuk, who's a co-founder of the Ukrainian Healthcare Center, UHC, a think tank located in Kiev, Ukraine. His background is in health financing and in management. From 2016 to 2019, so leading up to the COVID-19 pandemic, 
He served as Vice Minister of Health for Ukraine and led a large-scale health system reform in the country. In 2019 and 2020, he was consulted at the WHO Office for Health System Strengthening in Barcelona. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, Pavlo's team at the UHC monitored the pandemic in Ukraine and supported the government in pandemic response. My second guest is Dora Varga, who's no, uh, no stranger to the COVID Calls podcast. Uh, Dora is professor of history and medical humanities based jointly at Humboldt University in Berlin and the University of Exeter in the UK. She's currently leading two research projects on the history of socialism and global health. Previously, she had been co-editor of the Journal of the Social History of Medicine and has worked as an expert for WHO Western Pacific on informing epidemic preparedness with historical perspectives. It's so great to have you both with me today on the program, to have your voices recorded, to have you here to, to process, to make sense of this. And Pablo, I just want to start by just saying that on behalf of the entire COVID Calls team, I'm so happy that you're here to share this intellectual space. And our heart goes out to you, to your family, to, to, to Ukrainians right now, on behalf of all the COVID Calls team. It's good to have you both here. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So, Pablo, let's start with you. So for three years from 2016 to 2019, you served as Ukraine's vice minister of health. And I'm really fascinated to hear about your perspective of where the state of public health was at that time in Ukraine leading up to the pandemic, because it was both after the Russian invasion of Crimea and leading up to the beginning of COVID-19. So I want to start by, by hearing your experience of, of that period. So can you take us back to, to late September 2021, where Ukraine was on the brink of the deadliest period of COVID? And, and since the beginning of the pandemic, what have you seen from, from your time from 16 to 19 and then the beginning of the pandemic? Hello, uh, hello everyone. Um... Well, the period between 2014 to 2019 and on actually was the period when the, the country had the window of opportunity for kind of systemic reforms um, in, 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 in um, different spheres, uh, including healthcare. So the, the largest thing actually happened uh, not in the public health, but in health financing. We moved to the single payer system and that was a, was a huge thing which I was, I was involved too, but in public health were also a huge restructuring. So the Ukraine abandoned the Soviet system of the sanitary inspections, and I, I don't want to get into it in detail, but and we tried to establish the kind of European-American hybrid thing with Center for Public Health as a central organization, and then the branches in the, uh, in the regions and we needed to shrink the laboratories from almost 700 of them to, I don't know, 15 or something, but of a high quality. And the pandemic actually took us by surprise in the middle of this transformation. So uh, we were not, well, probably not, there is, there was no Western country ready for that, honestly speaking. But Ukraine as well was not really ready for that. Um, the good news were that at least some of the laboratories were in place more or less modern, more or less up to date. And uh, we were able to uh, roll out the more or less working testing 
system, which helps at least to, you know, track and the pandemic and, and, and at least to some, somehow address the pandemic in the, in the beginning. Um, the other important thing to say is that uh, Ukraine was unfortunately one of the world's um, least vaccine, um, um, how to say it, um, uh, optimistic countries, right? We were quite vaccine-hesitant country. And that had also the historical reasons uh, involving Russia also, <laughs> but not only that. Um, the post-Soviet countries are quite vaccine hesitant in general. Ukraine is no exception. And, um, the vaccination campaign, which came out in 2021 in Ukraine was quite poor. Um, so I would say these two factors were the, the most, um, problematic. One is this transition of the public health system and the other is high vaccine hesitancy. The good thing uh, which which we had uh, when the pandemic started it was our previous problem and that was the uh, very overinflated uh, hospital system, which in the normal times is a, is a huge headache. But during the COVID times, it was a good thing because we didn't really have this, uh, this images of, you know, overcrowded hospitals and stadiums and, uh, and, and whatever. So we had hospital beds were there. The problem was in oxygen, but, you know, eventually we fixed that problem. And the, the latest wave be, be, before the, the, the war started, the Omicron wave, was actually the the wave when the hospital capacity were able to process the amount of patients which were which were coming. Yeah, um, you know, I want to I want to actually dive into you know in this conversation some of those historical reasons, and that's why I'm so glad that that Doris here as as an expert, um, you know, in, in the 20th century in, in public health and disease and in, in Eastern Europe more broadly speaking. Um, and I'm just so captivated by by what you've what you've what you've told us here to think about the hospital as a space in Ukraine and a hospital in the first two years of the pandemic leading up to the war as as being one that's functioning where there's availability of beds and then there's a surge of Omicron just like think about the chronology here there's a surge of Omicron and and then and then now you know every day I'm, I'm just I was looking before a conversation at what's happening in Mariupol and there's just like hospitals directly being bombed right and and to to try to process what that means in a pandemic landscape is is really um it's really difficult right now but i but i really really appreciate um you sketching that out for us so dora i want to bring you in um to provide some of that deeper historical context about epidemics in eastern europe and you've written really extensively about the history of epidemics in in eastern europe about the cold war about the history of childhood the supposed, and I say supposed there really poignantly, end of epidemics. Um, I want to talk about that with you both here today. But why does this history matter so much right now? Pablo um, alluded to some of this, this historical context that, that we see coming up right now um, in terms of understanding how a pandemic crisis can overlap with war. What, what, kind of, what, what are you thinking about as somebody who's spent so much time studying disease, public health in Eastern Europe to see what's happening right now? 
Thanks. Well, uh, it, it's very difficult to to give a, a good uh, <laughs> on the spot historical analysis of what's going on right now because the <clears throat> historical trajectories are so many and there's so many threads to follow through. And at the same time, you know, looking for those uh, those past relevant experiences, of course, nothing fits into um, uh, to to really help us um, move forward. What we can, you know, what we do know is that outbreaks of war and disease are always come together, and they're always um, um, <clears throat> happen at the same time. Uh, partly, um, you know, what we can see is uh, the destruction of the infrastructure, the bombing of hospitals, and the um, <clears throat> uh, civilian attacks, which makes it very difficult um, to to give. Um, um, medical uh, support and also the 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 um, falling apart of infrastructure that um, uh, that can um, further um, hygienic practices. But um, there's also what uh, I think Pablo mentioned um, uh, before we joined is that the pandemic is on hold right now. Right? There's nothing like there is there is a war going on. There's no you know extra. Um, capacity to 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 deal with with anything else, and that's uh, that's often you know what we can see. We can only see much later what has happened in the background or in parallel. So these outbreaks become invisible. They're still happening. They're still there, but um, but sometimes they are they become invisible for decades, and and we don't know about them, or they become <clears throat> forgotten. Um, as it's often remarked of the Spanish flu, it's not so forgotten now. It's it has become one of the prime uh, uh, relevance points. But that that is, I think, um, uh, something that's definitely you know going on. We 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 know that. And we know that with the enormous movement of people, with the infrastructure being destroyed, with the health services being, you know, it's it's quite impossible, um, let alone the the injuries and so on, uh, that uh, that there will be, you know, uh, something coming if it's not there already. The other thing, though, I, I would want to raise, which I've been thinking about a lot lately, is is how this moment of you know the pandemic and then on top of it this other crisis kind of um, puts into conversation these metaphors and the way we talk about war and the way we talk about disease um, that that I think um, have I'm a bit worried about the, the 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 potential consequences that might have we you know in in two years we have been accustomed to really. Um, uh, appropriate these metaphors of fighting the disease and be mobilized as, you know, as, as to some kind of imaginary or, you know, uh, some kind of understanding of a war on, uh, on the pandemic, on disease, on infection. The immune system is, is, you know, represented as a, as a fortress or, a, or also in military terms. Um, and uh, and that has become you know very much um uh, coming to conversation a lot with 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 the the addressing of vaccination and and that is you know also um the the lockdowns the 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 uh restrictions on travel 
have all increased this kind of us and them, either us and them in terms of our own body and the virus, or us and them, the diseased, <laughs> the potentially diseased and the not, or our own body and everything external. And that, you know, that has been going on. And then now you have an actual war where these can, you know, turn around these metaphors and the us and them has now a very different, equally lethal meaning that, uh, that we only see the, the beginning of. And that is, is, uh, you know, historically you can, you can, there are countless examples, unfortunately, how that kind of dehumanization of, of the enemy, of the, you know, refugees, of the, of, uh, of, of immigrants, of whatever, of, of any kind of, um, racial, uh, discrimination, how that happens. And it happens very quickly, but it's in the, so both of the things are in the, in, in the, the air, so to speak. And, and I think that is, that is kind of, um, that, that is what I've been, I've been kind of concerned about. But not to, you know, end on, on an extremely, so I, I, I think it's, it's, I think it's so despairing that, um, I'm always trying to find, you know, some kind of constructive, some kind of example where, where this can serve, um, uh, when there's something positive can come out of it. So this kind of thinking about an epidemic or a pandemic as a war, these war metaphors, there are examples when this can actually serve as a deflection from the actual war. So you can see this happening um, in the Cold War, for instance, um, in uh, in Julio, in uh, the case of smallpox, where the two um, warring sides can come together because now they have a common enemy to to tackle. And and so there is precedence for that as well. It's not, you know, decidedly um, terrible, but um, it tends to go that way. Well, yeah, thank you so much. And I'm I'm really intrigued by by a couple of things that that you've sort of helped us to understand and think about here. And one is one is this question of end, um, the the end of or maybe the hold, the putting on hold of the pandemic. Um, and then two is is are, are these military metaphors, ones that are really longstanding. But I think, um, like you said, that the metaphor of war and the, the reality of war collide, or at least are colliding in this this one moment. Um, and then and then maybe a, a third point that I really like that I want to emphasize too, is like the one that you started with. And, and I think it's like, historians are, are, they don't say this enough, but I think like this, the last two years have, have made me fundamentally clear in this point is like, sometimes it's okay to just say, and we have to just say that like, there aren't good historical examples for this. Like the history like leaves us fall. Like it's important and the context is really important for cultural attitudes, for institutional practices. But at some point it's just metaphor. Right. And, and I think that's okay to sometimes say, um, you know, I, I think in the last couple of years, we've been grasping, um, for analogies, whether that's flu or whether it's smallpox or whether it's polio or whether it's cholera, um, whatever the historical corollary may be. And we're just faced with a situation that's, that's unique right now in, in many ways. And I think the war in Ukraine is, is proving, proving that. Pablo, I wanted you to jump in here and just anything that, that Dora mentioned about, um, the, the putting of the pandemic on hold or about these military metaphors. What are you seeing? What are you seeing about this either in, in, in the, in the media in Ukraine or, you know, amongst everyday people about how they're conceptualizing what's, what's happening in real time. Yeah. Let me bring in one more 
kind of philosophical thing about the war and disease, which I'm war and healthcare and, and disease, which I'm thinking a lot about now. And I think this is an important lesson to learn for the civilized world for, for the future. And this is about the hybridization of war. The wars become hybrid. And Ukraine being on the edge of this hybrid warfare for many years, now we have kind of the hot period, you know, when the military came in and the missiles are, you know, flying over. But we were under war since 2014, actually, and a lot of hybrid warfare was used against us. And we do observe that, and I think that's that's the the quite a horrific thing uh, for example, this shellings of hospitals, which our team is documenting right now, uh, we observe it's already 70 of them, 70 in 21 days of war, 70 times. Many of them are just direct shellings at the hospital with no reason, absolutely with no military justification, just a missile, you know, sent from 200 kilometers aims at the maternity hospital. Why? And the reason why they you, they spend this expensive, super expensive missile for that, you know, the reason is to, you know, ignite the panic and to create the refugee flow, right? They want refugees to flow to the Poland, to Romania, to the European Union. And actually, this is what Russia did in Syria recently, right? They created these refugee flows to make a pressure on the on the European Union. And not only this, it's just they force us to to surrender and, and so on and so forth. But for them, this clear line and this is what we are trying to, you know, to you know, to scream at at, at WHO and other humanitarian organizations that, you know, hey guys, it's not a world when it is divided. Now it's all put together it's all intertwined you know uh humanitarian issues and war issues and this is a cruel things about today's world that they put it together so it's what what is happening now what happened before we had a lot of informational attacks in healthcare for example with regard to vaccination and i do know that other countries also experienced that then they use twitter when they use social media to create divides across, you know, attitudes toward vaccination, so they divide societies. And this happened a lot in the United States, for example. But I don't know about what whether they found any evidence on that. In Ukraine, we did. We had the report of our intelligence that there was a system of Russian bots and trolls working on creating these divides and artificially, you know, making them stronger than they are in, in real life. And these hybrid things are what we should study and what we should prevent and probably what we should also consider probably as a part of the world warfare with which the world, the civilized world should, should control for the future. Yeah, I think, um, I think, I think you're absolutely spot on in, in thinking about the way in which the entanglement of, of the pandemic with the war in Ukraine has been also one that is has been deeply shaped by the spread of misinformation, right? And that that isn't new to to, to Russia, right? Um, I mean, there's 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 a, a lot of research um, about Russian 
infringement and misinformation in Ukrainian elections for at least the last you know decade. So, um, but I think that that you're absolutely right that that's that's got to be something that's that's on the radar here to think about. Dora, I want to I want to ask you about this spread of inf- misinformation and debates over over epidemics and war. Um, do you see any historical corollaries there in studying the Cold War? Well, the Cold War, of course, is a, is a is an era of of really all out propaganda from from all sides, right? Um, and and that is a, a part of it is a misrepresentation at best of uh, of what's going on or um, uh, getting certain key messages out there. It's very difficult to to trace the especially in you know on the Eastern European side what kind of rumors or information was was going on or how um, uh, certain people might have um, thought differently about uh, about the questions of epidemics uh, for instance and that is because we don't have those um, uh, that kind of open you know um, society where where you, you know you could find uh, papers and newspapers and letters to the editor and and correspondence and so on um to to show all these various um ways and you can only find it where um where something goes wrong and they're trying to figure out what had gone wrong and there you can see kind of what kind of rumors there are because that's when they're looking into it and that that's when it be- can become invisible and what it reveals basically what I have found and and of course you know this is a very little piece of of um of the of the whole um sorry what I have found is that some of these um uh, resistances to to um uh, to vaccination for instance or or to um, deeply rooted mistrust uh, uh, in the in the kind of scientific um, uh, tools that were used came from this uh, preconceptions of what the state is doing and how it's not fulfilling its role. So there is a kind of um, promise, I think, there that is established between the state and the citizens. Like you have to, you know, there are all these quite um, restrictive and not amazing parts of this, but in return, you know, you give us your labor um, and you're, you know, buying into this um, system and we provide you with these things. And if that fails, you know, that's when, when it starts going wrong. Mm-hmm. But of course the, the, you know, that kind of, what kind of information reached whom was very much, um, you know, then we know that, um, you know, the CIA was, <laughs> was involved, um, in, uh, in Radio Free Europe. We know that, that there were, you know, all kinds of, uh, uh, uh Russian, uh, Soviet key messages going on, um, uh, uh, inundating very uniformly, um, in, uh, in certain parts of the world. And, and that is, uh, that is part of it. What is interesting, I think, um, and, and, and worrisome equally is the, the biological weapon, um, accusation, which is, which has come up and which is not unprecedented, of course. Um, and most, you know, one of the most notorious cases of this, um, that had been taken to the UN is, uh, is the, the North Korean <clears throat> in the Korean War. And that is, you know, historically, not entirely resolved um, issue, 
and and it has you know a huge um, history and that you know shoring up those kind of um, fears and those kinds of uh, um, uh, tools to justify um, certain actions is very is very worrying. pick up um, and ask Pablo about this issue of trust that you that you brought up um, and trust in government, because one of the things that, that you were mentioning earlier, Pablo, is that, you know, in the in the years leading up to um, early 2020 with COVID-19, that Ukraine had switched to a single payer system, that there was, you know, a kind of restructuring of, 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 of the healthcare system. And and you also mentioned that 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 Ukraine had a, a low vaccination rate um, in the first, you know, last year and a half after the availability of vaccines. And I wonder if there's been a change um, in, in public trust during the war and the Ukrainian government. So, so do you think that the, that the, the lack of vaccination rates, the low vaccination rates were somehow entangled with a mistrust of government or was it a mistrust of, of the science or where did that, where did that mistrust come from? And then two, you know, at least from the the news reporting that we see from from the West coming out every day about Ukraine, there seems to be this like real galvanization amongst Ukrainians for trusting government right now and for for you know coming together as a nation. So so I want to like pick your brain a little bit about this issue of trust, like during the pandemic and now during the war, and has has trust in government shifted a little bit as a result of of the war? Yeah, it's a very interesting question because right now, uh, indeed, the trust in the government is record high, probably in all our, you know, 1,000 year history, you know, uh, kind of more than 90% totally trust the, the president and the government and myself too. I was very strong. I was very critical about our, our government and our president right before February 24. Including the uh, issues about pandemic, and uh, especially about issues about pandemic. But now, you know, it's not the time of of, of you know quarreling. Everybody is united, and the Ukrainian society now is extremely united. And by the way, Ukrainian society is very optimistic about uh, our chances to win this war. We think we believe ninety two percent of people here believe that we are going to win. And including myself, uh, unlike most of the Western media, you know, I don't read them anymore because uh, I'm getting too pessimistic reading them. Um, I talk to our military, you know, and I'm getting optimistic after that. Um, but uh, before that, uh, before the war started, uh, that low trust in government was one of the key factors uh, of our quite average uh, at the best uh, response to the pandemic again we have historical explanations for that um, the country with you know colonial history being under Russian you know colonial rule for many many years 
and we, we our the governments in our country over the past 300 years were other governments you know not our government it's the last 30 years we had our government but we didn't you know uh, create this um, understanding that this government is is ours you know so that people generally were kind of uh, very cautious about what government is saying and this is why i think that is one of the reasons why the, the testing and tracing campaign never worked well and that especially that the vaccination campaign never worked well so we had one of the lowest vaccination rates in europe kind of 30% of the population in the beginning of the 2022, which is nothing, actually. And most of the people were not really, you know, not believing in science or being not educated. People could be, you know, super educated. But they say, okay, I don't know whether the government says the truth, whether it is okay or not, I will wait and see, blah, blah, blah. So, um, yeah, it's it was real hesitancy you know so it's 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 a really very interesting situation that the pandemic as an emergency did not create in ukrainian society this feeling of you know unity and this feeling of response to some enemy whereas russia did that you know i don't know well russia is definitely worse than, than covid I, t- I tell you yeah so yeah, yeah. Hmm. That's really fascinating, though, because I think that goes back to like what Dora was talking about earlier of like these 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 metaphors of war and war and pandemic and how they're colliding right now. So that you know you know to think about the Ukrainian you know collectivization response to the pandemic being one of you know meh um, mistrust, and then the Ukrainian response to the to the invasion by Ukraine being unity. And, and, I don't, and I don't mean to be callous about this at all. Um, and this is not the time to, to seriously reflect on a public health campaign in the middle of, 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 of a war. Um, but I do wonder, and I wonder if, if either of you can reflect on this, if you think that one result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the collectivization of, of Ukrainians and this, this pouring of trust of the Ukrainian government will have a, a long-term impact and on public health and 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 healthcare in Ukraine. Like, I mean, I think that's going to be a very serious question. Well, I mean, if if I may, I will start on that. I, I believe yes. I believe yes. Uh, I do feel already that the proportion of the segment of Ukrainian population, which previously, you know, there was an attitude like. Again, attitude of lack of ownership of our government and of our state. You know, it was like, you know, there is we, the people, and there is the state. You know, the state does something. It forces us to vaccinate. It forces us, you know, to this and that, to pay taxes and blah, blah. Now, I do see that people change their mind dramatically you know they they unite they they start to you know believe and i think that after the war uh, i'm totally sure that ukraine will survive as a state and we will have you know finally we will have our own statehood which we were struggling for many many years in our history uh this ownership will emerge and that will lead to the new wave of 
change of, of, of reforms, including including reforms in the health sector. So I'm very optimistic of that. So it's it's now the the matter of when it ends and on what terms do we do we end that. Yeah. But generally I am optimistic about your what what you were asking me about. Yeah, no, that's glad. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I mean, that, that's that's my first blush too, is thinking that, you know, from historical examples and Dora, I'll ask you to maybe reflect on that is that sometimes when we when we when we talk about, you know, rises of nationalism in response to, to any type of crisis, um, that that they can impact a kind of collective effort towards public health um, in a progressive way. And I wonder, Dora, if you can think about polio campaign or smallpox campaign, like what role did nationalism have to play in, in, in either of those um, efforts? Well, I, I was thinking about um, slightly less um, optimistic lines um, because, and I'll, 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 I'll think about your question, but I, I want to add that, um, that of course it brings me, you know, to question of, of when I when I was thinking about you know how does an epidemic end uh, and how how do we talk about it how do we frame it um, and because of this war metaphor that was really um, uh, invoked all the time I was thinking okay how do wars end and wars of course don't end with the treaty or with the ceasefire um, uh, because you still have you know in Europe you had millions of displaced populations after World War II for. A decade, right? Um, and and you and there is that the level of destruction and and you know we talked about the the um, targeted bombing of, of hospitals and medical facilities, and that's what it achieves, right? That's a long term harm. It's not not uh, strategically important in purely military terms, but it you know it creates all the all the stuff that um, Pavlo was mentioning, but it also creates a very long term you know consequences, um, and and that uh, and I think that when when you know we think about you know where this ends and what will be the after, um, I think that that needs to be taken um, into consideration also with expectations, and not just the expectations of you know what. Ukraine is doing within, but you know when the world considers that okay, this is over, <laughs> moving on. Um, but that's not where it's over, and we we have countless examples of that across the world right now. So um, uh, that that you know uh, it's it's a it's a much longer process to 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 end um, that experience. Not to mention the, the the people on the move. So I think I think you know in 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 long term I I think that's 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 very hopeful and and very um, uh, uh, hopefully uh, probable that that will you know strengthen that kind of participation in the state um, uh, and and that will hold out and there will be you know um, a, a well functioning state um, uh, to be engaged with but uh, but it's. Um, it's it's very it's very a long term process that I think everybody has to acknowledge. Most of all, you know the kind of um, uh, support systems that are operating outside of the country as well. And in terms of nationalism, I think um, the the interesting thing about about um, uh, epidemics, uh, especially pandemics, but but any epidemic is that. They're extremely local things and extremely global at the same time. And they're understood as such 
by everyone at the same time. So on, you know, we always talk about, we frame our experiences about, you know, what COVID is. It means very different things across the world, depending on where we are, because it's shaped by the, 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 the policies and the relationships, um, of citizens and the, and the state and the public, um, health, uh, structures and the, the access to healthcare and the education levels and, and structures of society and so on and so forth. Um, they're very local because they're experienced as a community. So, um, that, uh, uh, that will, you know, eventually, um, be the, 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 the heart of it. But there's always an eye on the, you know, what's happening. And there's always this kind of, you know, the, there's a recognition that, that it's, it's not possible to get away from it and it's not possible to, to do it alone. Um, so there's always an eye on, on the, on the global, uh, aspect of it. So I think, I think those need to be in some sort of, 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 of harmony or, or in, in conversation at least for these, um, uh, for these, uh, campaigns to be successful or to, 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 to have a well functioning, um, public health system. Yeah, but I'm like really struck by that. Yeah, go ahead, Pablo, please. Can I add one more thing? Because I like the, the word nationalism, which you used. Uh, I, I am quite aware that the, 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 the notion of nationalism is, uh, has most negative connotations currently in the West, especially in the academia. But what I'm thinking is that, uh, what I expect and what I hope for after this, after this war ends, um, I think that and I hope for again that uh, there will be a rise of this um, in in international nationalism with regard to the free world. You know, the free world nationalism. So this wave of assertiveness of the um, free countries. You know, against you know countries like Russia who wants to bring us back to the very very dark times. You know, and um, I think what will happen in Ukraine later would be a part of this of this rise. You know, it will not just of Ukraine as a country somewhere in the middle of nowhere, you know. It will be about the I'm not speaking about even of the West. I'm speaking about of the free world in general, or the world which shares the values which are also very important in the healthcare sphere, like the value of a person, of a human, which unfortunately the Russian regime does not really share and we do see it by the way on how do they currently behave with their military they just throw them you know under the fire and there are a lot of casualties and they are by the way they are treated in our hospitals right now our hospitals are overwhelmed with russian soldiers i'm telling you and we take care of them and they don't take care of their own soldiers you know and this is about values, about fundamental values of our countries. So what I want to see, what I, you know, if, if this will not happen, I will be, you know, probably very, very disappointed about the world in general. But I do hope that this race of, you know, assertiveness of our basic values will happen. And that will happen also, you know, and, and it will help Ukraine to get out of this, of this trouble sooner rather than later like South Korea did like Japan did like Western Germany did after World War II I think it can happen we can have 
you know, assistance from Western countries. We will mobilize our own resources and we will reassert that we can do it. You know? mm-hmm. Wow, that's so powerful. And, and thank you for sharing sharing some of those really anecdotal stories, which honestly, they're, those are not the kind of stories that are making it in the Western media. Um, so that's really, I'm so glad you, you mentioned that. Um, I mean, I think what you're, what you're both saying, though, is like <clears throat> something really fascinating, which is that the the project of democratization must be a project that places health and and humanity at its core and and that's something that i think if you really think about you know the post world war 2 period that we have really struggled with before, leading up to covid-19 one of the big questions in global health um dora you'll know this and pablo you'll know this was was global health and equity and 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 we often you know, in the West frame that in very particular ways about the global South. And I think what the war in Ukraine is showing is that it's much more, it's much deeper than that. And I think, you know, some kind of coming together that's directly as a result of the war in Ukraine and the humanitarian crisis and the public health crisis, all just folding on top of one another at one time. Um, it, it, It almost has to be a moment where as a global community, we come together, and 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 and, I, and I'm really struck by that, um, and by what you both said because I, I can't get an image out of my head. Um, and the image is, we inherently know that pandemics don't know geopolitical boundaries; they they just don't care. Um, we also know that war is a geopolitical event. So Russia has invaded a sovereign democratic nation. So there's 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 a can of dichotomy there between those two realizations and and then another one where like today Zelensky president Zelensky asked the US to do more and asked other western countries to do more to help Ukraine and and there's this almost this this feeling that I can't help think of as like the biological reality is that there are no boundaries and the geopolitical reality is that there are very firm boundaries about NATO and about geopolitics, and and like where where do those where can those boundaries come come together right now? And I think that we need a re you know a reckoning of that because we've we've produced this moment right now, and and you know to see Ukraine as both isolation in isolation and not in isolation at the same time biologically and, and, and culturally and militarily is, um, is really disheartening. So um, I, I, I get earlier what you were saying about the optimism, Dora, and I too, um, Pavlo, have optimism about this moment and what it, what it, what it will lead to in the kind of galvanization, not just in Ukraine, but, but in other parts of, of the democratic world. Um, but I also, I've, I'm deeply troubled by, by what we're seeing in the, in the world right now with how it's responding to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I want to ask one last question of you both. And, and, and that is this question of end. Um, and I, and I understand it's a spurious question. It's, it's a totally unfair question, but how does this end? Dora, let's start with you and then we'll give Pavel the last word. <laughs> okay. Maybe uh, I'll do the kind of the, the more pessimistic take probably. And then um, hopefully we'll, uh, We'll have um, some uh, uh, um, more um, uh, optimistic uh, um, and, and positive note, at least um, at the end. I think um, I can I can say what I'm worried about um, 
I'm worried about the 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 obviously the the, the lengthening of this conflict, and I'm I'm worried about the, the the human suffering that's taking place, and I'm worried about you know as this is going on. Um, I'm particularly worried about in terms of health and you know epidemics and um, and the war to to keep the focus uh, on especially that the movement of people and the the the, the way um, the, you know the, the situation that refugees might um, find themselves in and there is a there uh, you know historically what what we can see is. Um, as I think, um, as uh, Jessica Reinisch um, wrote about this in 2015, and still very, very much um, uh, relevant, is that no nation, no country can be proud of ever, <laughs> of, of, uh, historically, of what they've done, you know, in terms of refugees and helping people. Um, and you know, what we see now is is heartening, and it's uh, and it's uh, and it's uh, it's uh, it's it's quite. Uh, um, um, it's it's a it's a quite positive thing of of, uh, of people welcoming um, refugees. There is it's a huge amount of people who are on the move, and uh, and I'm what I my worry is or my concern is that that you know once the first wave of enthusiasm subsides, you know what what are the structures that are in place and and what are the the how these um, you know what what happens to these people and what happens to these people in, in societies. And that is uh, is partly where this metaphor comes in that I was talking about the the kind of external um, and that taken together with with a, you know with with many of these people uh, perhaps not being vaccinated you know that can create a very you know dangerous um, image of 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 of, uh, of the re of refugees um, that uh, that we, that we need to be very thoughtful about of how we tackle uh, and and what and what kind of issues that may um, cause not to mention that that obviously the the mass amount of movement of people you know does create you know it's it's fertile ground for for infectious disease and and that is nobody's fault right this is this is the situation um so that is uh, that is uh, kind of um uh, what i'm Worry about uh, which, which are all these kind of longer term things of, of you know where we you know where we draw the end if it if the conflict itself ends you know still millions of people not in the right place so to speak um, even if the conflict ends you know there is then you know we, we can turn our uh, view back to the the pandemic you know what um, happens then so it's it's a very much that kind of kind of um, um, complicated uh, and multiple endings that you have for both the disease and and for the war. Yeah. Thank you so much. Multiple beginnings, multiple endings. I think that's the uh that's the that's the approach here. Pavel, I want to give you the last word. Thanks. Uh, well, I actually have two things to say. One is the following. What I really liked about our president uh, Zelensky address today to the Congress uh, is that uh he um, proposed the idea to create different structure of our peace and security, you know, infrastructure in the world. And he appealed to the to the idea of somehow uniting the, as he put it, um, responsible countries. 
the countries which not only you know absorb the deep concerns but who act when they see evil happening when they see wrong things happening and then they see that uh, you know the our uh, values which we believe in are being attacked i think he is right in that although again i am critical of all the president zelensky in the normal times but now he's very right of that because what i observed also during covid and it's very much similar to what is happening as a result a result of the war uh, in my country is that the old infrastructure of international corporations just does not work with covid there was absolutely no general world's response to covid you know every country was on their own and international organizations first of all who un global fund you know covax everything failed huge budgets very very low effect absolutely covax is a complete disaster i think one of the most disastrous things i ever observed so the covid showed us something and now we see the same in ukraine that there are countries who you know do something who act and who you know who um, show the lively reaction to what is happening and what is happening is a threat to the whole free world not ukraine you know if they subjugate ukraine they will move to baltics and they will move to poland and they will move to you know germany or whatever it's it's no doubt about that and what again what we do see that country by country we can find different stories but international organizations are failing miserably you know un rubbish you know who disaster they are all that you know only deep concerns only you know appeal to stop war to for peace they don't call the war the war they don't say that the russia is an aggressor they don't say the russia is actually attacking hospitals they say we are against attacking hospitals okay everybody in the world is against attacking hospitals you know yes. but what do you do about that so this this is number one we need to think about changing this peace and health and security infrastructure in the world because it doesn't work neither with covid nor with wars and second when this will end if well it will not end by itself this is a critical thing to understand somebody needs to end that and this somebody is first russia of course because it started it you know but if russia doesn't want to do that and they don't want to do that the world has to compel them to do that and ukraine is doing a lot in compelling them to do that we fight with our military we do a lot of diplomacy they, we do a lot of other things our partners also do a lot of things with economic sanctions and so on and so forth but there is also a lot of things everyone can do and one is to say the truth not to be silent you know to call a spade a spade to call russia an aggressor to call the war the war and so on and so forth second press russia on all levels isolate them right now you know there is no good russians and bad russians these people elected putin putin started the war so they can stop it 
you know, they can stop it. They are responsible for that as the citizens of their country. So on all levels, businesses, international corporations, they should at least know about your position that you are not okay with what, with what their country is doing. And that is a lot, believe me. If the world will create this atmosphere of, you know, telling out the truth and expressing and asserting our values and our beliefs, it will end much sooner than we think. So this is what I'm asking everyone who is listening to us. Just say it out aloud. Don't be silent. Say the truth. And yeah, and it will it will end. Yeah, I just can't help but think, thank you both so much of the, the HIV AIDS uh, slogan from, from the 1980s of silence equals death. Um, it's such a powerful metaphor to end on here. Um, Dora Varga, Pablo Kovtunyuk, thank you both so much for joining me today. I'm just absolutely humbled right now with, with, with everything that you've shared. So thank you so much for joining us on COVID Calls. I'm up next um, in a few minutes here with my next episode, part two of this series. So thank you both for being here and um, catch you next time on COVID Calls.